0: Greetings, everyone, who are uh, joining us today here at Bethany in the the sanctuary, perhaps across the street as well, in the chapel, but many, perhaps on this snowy Sunday, watching online, we're glad that you're able to be with us today on what I believe is a very important uh, sermon, so I'll take a moment, pray, and then uh, we'll begin. Father, we trust and ask and pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher now. We listen for your voice in these words. We pray that we would be receptive uh, to what you reveal, and we'll thank you for the fruit of that. We pray in Christ's name, amen. I, when I teach uh, preaching, I say to students, never begin a sermon with a joke, because it's like, it can be disastrous. If the joke falls flat, you've ruined the whole thing. I'm beginning with a joke today. I think it's the first time in my 24 years here at Bethany that I'm beginning with a joke, but the joke is a cultural critique, and so for that reason I offer this to you. This is how how the joke goes I heard a long time ago. Uh, I saw this guy once on a bridge. He was about to jump. I said, don't do it, and he said, nobody loves me. I said, God loves you. Do you believe in God? He said, yes, I do. I said, are you a Christian or Jewish? He said, I'm a Christian. I said, me too. Are you Protestant or Catholic? He said, Protestant. I said, me too. What denomination? He said, Baptist. I said, Me too. Are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, Northern Baptist. I said, Me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, I'm Northern conservative Baptist. And I said, me too. I'm Northern conservative Baptist. Great Lakes region, or Northern conservative Baptist Eastern region. Which are you? He said, I'm Northern conservative Baptist. Great Lakes region. I said, Me too! He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879 or Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912? I said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region of 1912. I said, die, heretic, and I pushed him off the bridge. And the reason that I share that as a joke is to point out how quick we are as Christians to cannibalize our own, to shoot our own wounded, to divide, And to divide into tribes, even though we all agree at a kind of a macro level that Jesus is Lord. And that's a huge problem because Jesus says in John 17 that the one thing that I want my body of Christ to display to the watching world is visible unity. It's the one thing Jesus prayed for in his last prayer before his arrest. And in this prayer, Jesus said that our visible unity would be the defining characteristic whereby people would believe in Christ and his message. To the extent that we are united, we offer credible testimony to the world. To the extent that we're divided, our credibility dissipates. And so this is a very important theme. It was on the heart of Christ that we be united. And Paul picks up on this theme. Frankly, it's the whole reason that he wrote the book of Romans. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians were at risk of dividing, even though they both claimed Christ as Lord. And so Paul is writing at a time when the, the Roman emperor is kind of saying this, Caesar is Lord, I, the emperor, am Lord. I have the power to unite all people. A culturally diverse community, by virtue of my military strength and power, you're all united under my quote-unquote lordship. So that when Paul says Jesus is Lord, what Paul is saying is that Jesus demonstrates a more powerful capacity to to unite even than Caesar, a more powerful lordship. Jesus can hold together an even more diverse community without resorting to force, love being the binding element rather than force, so that we can see what Paul later says in the book of Galatians, there is therefore now no longer in Christ Jew-free, excuse me, Jew-Gentile, slave-free, rich-poor, black-white, all are one in Christ. I bring you good news, great joy for what, said the angels in Luke chapter 2? All people. And in a tribal world, this profoundly reconciling message, I believe, should be central to who we are because this is the hope that is available to us. And that's the vision, a united body of Christ. But the reality is already in the first century in Rome, the church was dividing into factions. And they were dividing over issues that were in their minds and hearts so important that the fellowship of this one with this one, who has a different view, is impossible. We both love Jesus, we both know Christ, but we cannot enjoy fellowship, and so we're dividing over issues. And so when Paul writes this to the Romans, there's two categories of believers. Both are saved, both are in the same family, according from God's perspective. Both are called to get along with each other, but they're dividing. Whatever is the issue that's on the table is so important to them that they can't bear witness to Christ together. They need to separate. The result is divisions, faction, broken fellowship, name-calling, people withdrawing into subgroups who look alike, think alike, sound alike, kind of echo chambers, who think, believe pretty much the same way. And so this is what we have. One Jesus, literally now 20,000 denominations. Ridiculous. So kind of the question on the table is how do we address this? And Paul addresses the issue head on by answering four questions. Question number one, who are the weak and strong that Paul speaks of? Those are the two different categories over which uh, division is being created. Who are the weak and strong? Second, what must the weak remember? Third, how should the strong behave? And finally, what issues fall into this category? So there's four really important questions that are really central to us understanding our vision as Bethany Community Church, as we'll see toward the end of our time together. Tribalism is, frankly, in our culture now, one of the most visible and uh, uh, kind of present problems that all of us are facing. We see it in the, in the political landscape. We see it in the cultural landscape. And sadly, what we see in politics and the cultural landscape is often mirrored in the church. Dividing, 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 into echo chamber communities. How do we address it? Well, four questions. And the first question that Paul asks is this. Who are the weak and strong of whom Paul speaks, right? And so just watch this. Here's, here's, here's the division. This, this is how it plays out. The weak tend toward universal absolutes and a more legalistic. They're the vegetable eaters in this text. And by vegetable eaters, we mean they view eating meat as sin. Paul isn't saying the weak aren't saved. They are saved. And, and, and they're usually actually the most fervent in following Christ and wanting to do the right thing. And I'm just going to observe that often people who tend toward legalism have, have grown up in um, um, atmospheres of moral anarchy. Do you know what I mean by that? Like if I grew up where there were no standards, everybody did their own thing, kind of a state of, of chaos, whether it's in my family or my school or my peer group, I'm attracted to absolute right and wrong. Just tell me what to do. This is in, this is out. This is right, this is wrong. That's, in Paul's language, the weaker brother. And they often say, look, I just follow the Bible, and they have a verse about whatever is the issue of the day, which in Romans was about what can you eat and on what day do you worship. Those were the two issues. The weak are generally viewed as conservative, as, as a bit legalistic, maybe even a lot legalistic. In one of the books that I wrote, for example, I received a negative review on Amazon from somebody that I would call a weaker brother, because he said, I, you know, I began reading the book, and then as soon as Richard quoted from the message, I was done, because for him, it was King James only. Now that, I would call that a weaker brother, do you see? Like this is the Bible, definite article, the translation, definite article, and anybody who uses anything else is wrong. That's kind of what we're talking about when we talk about weaker brother. Now, on the other hand, the strong tend toward liberty and flexibility, and they're like this, you know what, we're saved by grace, and so we're free. We're free to worship on this day or that day. We're free to eat meat or be a vegetarian. We're free to drink alcohol or abstain. We're free to divorce and remarry or to remain married. We're free because we're saved by grace. And so these issues lead to the the ones with more liberty judging the conservatives as legalistic and the ones with less liberty judging the ones with more liberty as uh, heretical and immature. And then we divide. And that's kind of what's going on here. But understand what Paul is saying. Both groups, the weak and the strong, both know Christ, both love Christ, both seek to follow Christ, both groups also say, I'm just following the Bible. They're both rooting their ethics in the Bible. And it's that last phrase, I just follow the Bible, that can get us into trouble and division. When people say to me, hey, I'm just following the Bible, I say to them, really, well, let's talk about meat, because that's the issue here in Romans 14. Like in the beginning, in the Old Testament, oysters and bacon, for example, were unclean. And then in Acts 10, Paul sees this sheep coming down out of heaven. He has a dream. And in this sheet is all kinds of what are called unclean meats, including oysters and bacon, I presume. God says to Peter, get up and eat. Peter says, I can't. They're unclean. God says, they were unclean. Now I'm declaring they're clean. And then in Acts 15, uh, Christians are debating who gets to be in and who's out. Can Gentiles be in? And now there's a new category. Look, Gentiles can be in as long as they don't eat raw meat. Or meat used to offer worship uh, to idols. Now, that's forbidden in Acts 15. But by the time you get to 1 Corinthians 8, eating that meat is okay. And not only is it okay in 1 Corinthians 8, but Paul presumes that it's okay and has been okay for a while. It was not okay in Acts 15. It it is okay in uh, 1 Corinthians 8. And before Acts 15... Unclean meat became clean in Acts 10 before it was unclean uh, in the Old Testament. So when you say to me, just follow the Bible, I say to you which part? And, and, and many people then pick a text and make it their text and judge everybody who doesn't believe exactly the same way that they do on an issue. And the crux matter is this. Paul is saying the weak and the strong who differ on an ethical issue shouldn't divide on the issue. Actually, the weak and the strong Need each other. That's the point. So who are the weak and the strong? The weak tend to be more legalistic. The strong tend to be more libertarian. Both need each other. That's what Paul is going to take us to. That's the first question. Who are the weak? Who are the strong? Second question, if you're on the weak side here, what must the weak, the legalist, remember? And here's what the weak need to see. Basically, uh, three things. The first thing the weak need to see is this. We're all justified by faith. We're all justified by faith. Chapter 14, verse 3. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat, that's the, the, the weaker brother, is not to judge the one who eats. Why? Here's the, look at the one who eats. God has accepted him. So Paul is speaking to the weaker brother saying, hey, you're judging this guy. Listen. Though he has more liberty in this area than you, a different view than you, God has accepted him, so you accept him too. Really very, very important. What he's really saying here is all of us are justified the same way. We're not justified by our performance. We're not justified by our ethical adherence to a certain group of standards. We are are justified by grace, right? And when you look at the history of God's people, the thing that stands out to me as undeniably true and important is that God is way more generous than we are regarding who's in, in the family of faith. I mean, When I, when I look back at the Old Testament, I'm like this. Look at, it, here's Abraham. God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are you kidding me? These are like three disastrous individuals. Abraham slept with a maid, impregnated her, sought to thwart God's will. Uh, Isaac uh, bore twins, his wife bore twins, unabashed favoritism toward his son Esau even though God said I'm going to bless Jacob uh, not Esau as the child of the promise Jacob marries four different women and is a liar and a thief add David into the mix who impregnated his neighbor's wife and then once discovered that she was pregnant uh, killed her husband and David's called the man after God's own heart so I'm the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and David's the man after God's own heart and I think I kind of wonder, would any of these four be welcome in many of our churches? And the answer would be no. (laughs) Because they're not doing it right. They're not doing it right. And listen, you were never justified by doing, ever. You're justified by receiving what God has declared and what God did on the cross. And so we got to get over this notion that uh, we're going to judge somebody because they're not performing right. No. The second thing that uh, the weak need to remember Kind of a facet of the first thing. We're all justified by faith is the first thing. The second thing is this. Look, God's the final judge. We're not not to judge each other because God's the judge. Verse 4. Who are you to judge the servant of another? Don't judge. Now, some who know their Bibles. find an alarm going off at this moment. Because in 1 Corinthians 5, uh, Paul says, Hey, there's a guy in your church. And he's sleeping with his stepmother. And everybody knows about it. And rather than mourning over this violation of God's ethical standards, you guys are boasting about it. You should be addressing this sin. And then uh, what Paul says in 1 uh, 1 Corinthians 5 that's significant is this sin that's going on in 1 Corinthians 5 is so universally agreed upon as fallen that even the pagan culture sees it as wrong. So the pagan culture, the people driving by, are saying, wow, look what the church allows, and they're offended by it. That's what needs judging. But you see, that's very different than what's going on in Romans 14, because in Romans 14, the issues are clear to both sides as not sin. Does that make sense? Both sides think that they have the moral high ground. And here's the thing, they're both reading the same Bible, they both love Jesus, they're both saved, And they're coming up with dramatically different conclusions. And I just want to say here that, uh, as I fix this, that historical perspective is vital. Because while the issues in Romans 14 seem pretty obvious today to us, every, feels like decade or every two decades or so, there's an issue that's debated within the church and the church divides over it. And in my lifetime I've seen this, but if you go further back in church history, you see over the church, over the centuries, the church has debated all kinds of issues. Back in the first century, here was a question, can you even work in the theater? Uh, And the church divided over this. Some said yes, some said no. Can you serve in the military? The church divided over this. Can you own slaves? The church divided over this. Can you charge interest on a loan? Remember? Oh, no man, anything but the debt of love, chapter 13, you can't charge interest, because you shouldn't even be loaning money. And the church divided over this. So therefore, can you work in banking? And the church divided over this. Can you have tattoos? The church is divided over this. Can you have piercings? The church is divided over this. Uh, Should women be able to vote in the church? The church is divided over this. Should alcohol be consumed? The church is divided over this. Should movies be attended? The church is divided over this. Should any music other than church music be listened to? The church is divided over this. Can you play cards? The church is divided. And so the, the more conservative group is often judging the group with more liberty. You have cards. You're a sinner. You go to the movies. You're a sinner. And every decade, it's a different issue. But th- listen, there's always an issue. Does that make sense? And so most of the issues that I've already articulated, nobody's splitting churches today over whether they can be an actor We have our own issues. Someone once came up to me and said, look, I just want a one-word answer. Literal six-day creation or or not. Just yes or no. Because if you say no, I'm out of here. That's an issue today. Listen, sexual ethics, huge issue today. Including, of course, the subject of premarital sex and who gets to marry. Churches are dividing over this. It's important to remember that for the generation wrestling with an issue, the issue isn't seen uh, as, as gray at the moment. It's seen as black and white. And if you're over here, you know the answer. And if, if you're over here, you know the answer. And if you know the answer, the other side is, is the, it's not like they have a different view. They're wrong. That's, that's what's going on here in Romans 14. And so for them... Each side could quote chapter and verse about why it's wrong to, like on this side, why it's wrong to worship on Sunday and why you can't eat meat. And over here, why it's okay to worship on Sunday and why you can't eat meat. And you can quote chapter and verse too. everybody in the room, on why divorce is always wrong or why sometimes it's okay. You can quote chapter and verse on why the earth is 6,000 years old or why uh, God is in charge of theistic evolution and the earth is 3.8 billion years old. You can quote verses about why you should never use a credit card or ever have a debt or why debt's okay. And you can quote your verse, and you can have bomb-proof certainty regarding your position. And you know you're right, and you know the other side is wrong. And I'm going to say to you that if you're quoting verses to discuss an ethical issue, and you know you're right, and you're judging the other, here's what Paul is saying. Stop it. I mean, this is not our calling. And that's what God is saying, particularly the weak. Quit judging. But it applies to the strong as well, who are judging the weak for judging them. (laughs) So this is what we have to see. And then, of course, Paul declares to the weak, look, each one of us needs to be convinced in our own mind regarding our own conviction on all of these matters. So I may be convinced in my mind that I'm right, fine. The person over here has a different view. When I hold a view passionately, it's because I think I'm right. And listen, it's okay to think you're right. But watch this, if I think I'm right and my friend disagrees with me, it's so significant then that I understand he must be convinced in his mind. She must be convinced in her mind. I can't impose my view. You have to become convinced. Does that make sense? Each person has to become convinced. So this is what Paul is basically saying here to the weak. We're all justified by faith, God's the final judge, and each one of us must be convinced in our own mind, so l- give the other person space to become convinced. That applies to all kinds of issues, as we'll see. Our convictions might change over time on various issues. We may move from being over here to over here, or over here to over here, but for that to happen, we need to be in fellowship with people who think differently than we do, and this is what Paul is saying. The third question is this. How should the strong, the libertarian on an issue, behave? The strong aren't really called strong until chapter 15, verse 1, but we use the category here, right? These are people who know that salvation is through Christ alone. They're content to live by their conscience. They believe God will give them guidance. They've often grown up in strict legalistic backgrounds. And so now they're enjoying liberty, right? Like I grew up in a, like where everything was black and white, and we knew... This is the way it is. This is right. This is wrong. These people are in. These people are out. And then we react against it, and we move toward a a view of liberty. Often, that's what happens. So what does God have to say to the libertarians? First of all, this is what God says, verse 8, of chapter 13, your motive for whatever is your action, your motive needs to be love. It needs to be love. Our only ongoing debt is love to, to the other. When you flaunt your liberty in front of another person that you know has a different view on an issue, you're not acting out of love, you're acting out of pride, right? So um, alcohol might be okay for Christians in one setting, but, but when I travel, if I go to Nepal, I don't know a Christian who drinks any alcohol. So when I'm working with a church in Nepal, I don't drink any alcohol. When I'm working with a church in Africa, I don't drink any alcohol. When I'm in Nepal, it's chai tea. When I'm in Africa, it's Fanta orange drink. It's fine. It's not not my place to go in and impose my liberty. I'll never forget my dad when we were uh, kids, about 1966 or so, we'd gone to the movies, and we watched uh, The Sound of Music, and my grandmother, uh, deeply devoted Christian, worked at this Christian camp, but pretty legalistic, and there were two things that she was utterly opposed to that my dad had embraced. Playing cards and going to the movies. That was my grandmother. So we, we go to the movies, then we drive out to the coast to visit my grandma, and dad, I'll never forget, dad parks the car, and he says to my sister and I, listen, not one word about the sound of music. I don't want grandma here and the we went to the movies. And the playing cards, stick them under the seat here. I, if I see those playing cards in the house, you're going to be punished, right? Like, that seemed harsh in the moment, and you can even retrospectively debate what was going on there, I think my dad is honoring my grandmother. In other words, this is like, I'm not gonna argue with you, grandma, about your view on movies by coming in and saying, man, we saw the sound music, it was awesome, and here, uh, grandma, let me teach you how to play poker. No! Like, that's not love. Does that make sense? So if you're like this, like I have to drink, not love. I got to dress casual, not love. I remember getting really angry one time. To this woman who uh, she was relatively new to Christ, this was many, many years ago, but she was here in Seattle and uh, had come to Christ to have a chaotic background. And regarding music, like she'd been to concerts and bad things had happened to her. Concerts, at like rock concerts, and then she, you know she's in a community, living in a community, and we're standing, chatting one day, she and another gal, and she says, you know what really sees me through the day? I love listening to Spirit 105.3. Now, if you're in Seattle, you know, that's the Christian music station, and uh, if you are in Bethany, you know, not everybody listens to this, and not everybody even likes it who are Christians. This gal said this, and her friend, who had been a Christian a long time, she got kind of this wry smile on her face, and this is what she said. Oh, don't worry, you'll get over it. I want to tell you something. That really made me, that made me mad. And I wanted to say to that gal, although I never did, I want to say, you know what, you don't know her story. You don't know what happened to her at rock concerts. You don't don't know how she's been damaged by secular music. You don't don't know the balm that this music is to her. It may not not measure your soul, but you don't know her. You're not in her shoes. You don't have her story. You don't feel her pain, so shut up. I didn't say any of that, but I kind of wanted to because we judge each other. And people who are over here, with all this liberty, here's somebody who doesn't drink alcohol, and we put a smile on her face like, we're on the moral high ground. You're not on the moral high ground. You just happen to drink alcohol. Don't judge the one who doesn't. And so, like, if you have these progressive views, fine. I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to say to you, quit judging the other. Because that's what Paul is saying. Because when you're judging the other, you're not acting out of love. So that's the first thing that the strong need to understand. Your motive must be love. Second, recognize your power to harm, right? Chapter 14, verse 8. Not one of us lives to himself. So when, when I indulge, I, I run the risk at times of harming the faith of another. So recognize your power to harm because the power is real. My, my liberty can lead someone to indulge who doesn't actually have that liberty to indulge, and now their conscience is defiled, and now they're dealing with shame because they're trying to exercise the liberty that you have because you judge them for not indulging. This is wrong. We need to recognize our power to harm. That's why uh, when you go into a place, uh, like when, when I go to Africa, it doesn't matter what the weather is, pastors wear a white shirt and a tie. Like I wear a have once a year here, maybe. But this is Seattle. But when I'm in Africa, I don't I don't walk in with my Northwest casual because that A would not be love. B may even potentially harm. Do you see? So this is what we have to understand. And then the third thing we have to see is that the one we're harming is part of our own family. Verse four, uh, chapter 14, verse 15, when you flaunt your liberty and the result is that someone indulges with you and violates their conscience or worse, enters this rabbit hole of destructive sin, remember that your liberty is harming a member of your own family. The one you're harming is part of you. You're over here. This person is over here. Or you're over here. <clears throat> you have liberty. This person is over here. You're exercising your liberty. This person now... As a means of following you and gaining your favor out of their own insecurity, they exercise liberty, but their exercise of liberty defiles their conscience. They're feeling guilty. They're dealing with shame. You are harming their faith, and you're not part of two communities. From God's perspective, it's one community. You're harming a member of your own family. (laughs) So we're all in this together, people. Even even on issues where we don't agree, our failure, I think, our failure to see our radical connectedness is what leads us to callously divide and judge and it totally cuts both ways. Now I wanna you know, close this up by asking a very important question. What issues are in this category? Like for us it's not um, you know, meat. We have vegetarians in the community and we have uh, bacon eaters in the community, it's all good. For us, it's mostly not dress, it's not tattoos. Like what issues fall into this category of quote-unquote disputable matters? Well, there's no single right answer to this question that works for all time because as I've already shared with you, disputable matters are determined by two things. Number one, the cultural context uh, and, and uh, number two, the time and history. So time and place determines what is a disputable matter. And we don't like that answer because you know, we want to list where God says, these are the disputable matters. But we don't have a list. Here, but here's what we know. You've got to ask the question here. Uh, what were the issues dividing the weak from the strong in the Roman church? And, and kind of, here's what you're asking. Were these matters of kind of relative insignificance? Or uh, were they matters of kind of robust importance? So what do we have here in Romans 14 and 15? I believe, pretty strongly actually, that at the time the issues of eating meat or not eating meat, worshipping on this day or that day, were in this robust category where people thought that the other couldn't be saved or couldn't be a mature believer unless they believed like the other side. The preponderance of evidence. Not the least of which is the sheer length of time. I mean, Paul spends two chapters dealing with this stuff. This suggests to me that these are first-order moral concerns, like really, really important stuff. And of course, we don't think of these issues as important things today, but they are important things. Uh, today, we go, oh yeah, it's Saturday night service, worship on Sunday, it's all good. You eat meat. You know what I mean? It's all good. But at the moment here we understand that these issues for them were gigantic. So here's where we're going with this. Ephesians 4.13 says, look we're one body the church is one body from God's perspective, one body but we haven't yet attained full unity. So We're one body, but we don't yet have full unity. We're we're united, but we're not uniform. Does that make sense? And So that means the church is going to look very different in one culture and another culture in one time in history and another time in history. And even within a given time and place, people will be divided on how how faith finds true expression. People, they're going to be divided. But Paul says, though you're divided on the ethical issues, don't divide. That's what he says. I'm going to ask Abigail to come up here with a sign because this is so important for Bethany. This, this is Bethany's message, right? Uh, I, I came here as a college student. I changed my major from architecture to music, and I moved up to Seattle. And I, like in the 70s, my church argued over whether women uh, can even pass the plate. Like, are they worthy to pass the plate in the service or not? Let alone preach. And so there were arguments over women in ministry in my childhood. There were arguments over divorce in my childhood. I know people who were no longer welcome in the church because they divorced and they wanted to come to church. They wanted to know fellowship. They wanted a place of healing. But because of my church's view on divorce, boom, they were not welcome, right? So when I came to Seattle, I saw this sign, Bethany Community Church in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, in All Things Charity. I was like this, this is it. And I never left until I graduated and then I left and then I came back. (laughs) But this is is the message. This is what we are about. Like Bethany is about this and has been for decades. And yes, issues have come and thank you very much. You can. There have been issues that have come and gone during that period of time. Women in ministry, speaking in tongues, divorce and remarriage. Uh, wealth and poverty issues on wealth and poverty yes robust discussions yes disagreement and yet by God's grace still one tenth. why because we all claim, uh, claim Christ is Lord this is huge we need to be that people today because more than ever the temptation to divide is here why because we live in a polarized culture where division and fragmentation is increasingly uh, the, the, the way that we deal with differences no, and I'm here to say that Paul is here to say no. When I um, first traveled to Germany in 1993 to teach, I'd grown up in a very conservative background with respect to alcohol. And so I, I knew, because this, is, this was my family, Christians don't drink. I didn't drink. My dad didn't drink. My mom didn't drink. My dad, in fact, not only did he not drink, but he taught me from the Bible why drinking was always wrong for all people for all time. So, in my world, I didn't, I didn't know a Christian who ever drank alcohol. And then I go to Germany, I teach, and I have a, a, week, a free weekend between two teaching sessions, and this guy invites me uh, to his house, and we tour recently free Eastern Germany, and then we go to his house for dinner and he's got his whole family there, his grandmother, his parents, his uh, sister and her husband, his brother and his wife. And we're, we're enjoying this big meal for like four hours. And there's, you know, sausage and sauerkraut, potato salad, and all this typical traditional German food. And all of them are drinking all night long. Lots of beer, some wine. And, and we're talking about faith. And these people know their Bibles. And they know Martin Luther and they know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And they know Sophie Scholl. And they know all my my faith heroes, and they're drinking alcohol, and my head's exploding. It doesn't make any sense to me. And at the end of the night, the grandmother, she says, me, I want you to come to my house. I'm going to show you something. She lives three doors away. I go to her house. She opens up a scrapbook of World War II and shares her story. Right after she was born, her, um, her dad was taken away in World War I and died. And she married in 1937, and her husband was taken away by Hitler to serve in the Reich Army, and he was shipped off to the Eastern Front, and the war ended, and he didn't return home for two years. And in the meantime, her house was bombed. Most of her standard family was killed in the bombing of Dresden. Uh, uh, She got sick, and two years later, her her husband returned, and she shares this whole story of, of war, and loss, and deprivation, and famine, and disease. And I said to her, how do you survive with so much joy? And she points at her Bible that's right next to the scrapbook. And she says, every morning I meet with Jesus and I ask for joy and strength and he's never failed me. And then she took another swig of beer. Like, you know what, Like I totally had to go home and repent. Because I'd spent the night going, you guys are hypocrites, man. Like you're, you're talking Jesus and you're drinking wine. You're drinking beer. Christians don't. And now, what do I learn? Oh, wait. Christians do. She's holier than I am. And she drinks beer. Look, this is huge for us. If we can walk through the ethical issues of our day and not divide, we can present a testimony to our city and our world that Jesus is greater than any single issue that is polarizing our world. And so that's why this morning in your bulletin there's a question. I'm at risk of breaking fellowship with a Christ follower over and then I want you to fill in the blank. What is it for you? What is it that's creating division? Like where's the relationship at risk and what's the issue over which you're dividing? And then I want you to pray for that person with whom you disagree and work toward conversation and reconciliation so that though we don't agree on everything, We agree with this one statement, Jesus is Lord. And that becomes the glue that holds us together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, meet us now as we respond or as in homes we discuss or whether out running, and this is a podcast, we listen for your voice and we pray for your church, Not not only Bethany, but your church. Would you teach us to live with visible unity? And show us steps to take toward that end. And we'll thank you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen.